I want you all to know that America today, America today is on bended knee in prayer for the people whose lives were lost here, for the workers who work here, for the families who mourn. This nation stands with the good people of New York City and New Jersey and Connecticut as we mourn the loss of thousands of our citizens. I can hear you! I can hear you, the rest of the world hears you, and the people... I'm Corey Weathers. You're listening to Military Culture Shift, a limited series podcast on the impact of war, money, and generational perspective on morale, retention, and leadership. generational influence. I've had enough experience in all my years and have read enough of the past to know that advice to grandchildren is usually wasted. If the second and third generations could profit by the experience of the first generation, we would not be having some of the troubles we have today. Harry S. Truman. Chapter one, generational perspective. For many years, the culture of military family life was driven by deep bonds formed over a love of country and the other military families you experience life with. Those relationships were further forged in the fire of shared unspeakable combat trauma and a tribal mentality that held our community together and connected us to the veterans of the past. The American culture reflected some of what we were experiencing as studios put out movies like The Hurt Locker, Black Hawk Down, We Were Soldiers, and the popular Band of Brothers series, just to name a few. After 9-11, the entire nation seemed ready to support the mission of defending our country, whatever that meant. As late as May 2011, I remember being glued to the television as President Barack Obama announced the death of Osama bin Laden, and our entire neighborhood came out of their homes to celebrate in the streets. But then something changed. I call this the great culture shift. Before the great culture shift. Like many military families, joining the military for us was not only about serving our country, it provided financial security for our family. We were delayed in following hundreds of thousands of service members after 9-11 due to graduate school. But by the time we joined in 2011, families had already gone through two or three deployments. For many new families, sign-on bonuses at the time made the decision to join easier and financially promising. It was not uncommon to hear of $25,000 bonuses, educational degrees paid off, and new soldiers driving brand new trucks and sports cars to celebrate. When we arrived at our first duty station at Fort Carson, Colorado, we were offered a newly constructed home in a new neighborhood on the installation. The force was growing significantly and housing demands were more than housing contractors could keep up with. 
After barely escaping the housing crash, we felt great about our decision. The military lifestyle was already proving better than anything we could have afforded in the civilian world. When we joined active duty, we were told immediately about deployment cycles already in motion. Accepting this assignment meant my husband would be deployed to Afghanistan a short nine months from our move-in. For conventional forces, deployment cycles included one year deployed, then one year home. While we didn't see it at the time, that level of predictability gave us time to wrap our minds around what to expect for the next two to three years of this lifestyle. During my husband's deployment to Afghanistan in 2009 to 2010, almost all the service members on our street deployed as well, leaving military spouses outnumbered by their children 12 and under. We had one neighborhood dad who graciously offered to hang Christmas lights or help wrangle kids after work. I relied heavily on my neighbors during that time for my sanity and survival. I did my best to be reliable for them as well. We took turns running to the grocery store, watching each other's kids, hosting birthday parties, and celebrating holidays together. On days we were especially tired or needed a break from chicken nuggets or cooking an entire dinner, we shared a potluck dinner. Our mother hen of the neighborhood was Mama Pam, a loud Aggie whose hugs were bigger than her Texas pride. Her kids were the oldest on the street, and we learned much of our parenting and navigation of military life from her. She taught us how to potty train, how to teach respect and selfless service to our children, and how to get involved with our assigned units. She would remind us, don't complain if you aren't willing to do something about it. When tragedy hit a little too close to home, she and her kids led the way as we huddled together and served each other. During deployment, our squadron had regular family readiness groups, or FRG meetings, where we were briefed on any and all new information. A paid position called a Family Readiness Support Assistant, or FERSA, was assigned to our unit and was often filled by a military spouse. This person would distribute information through phone calls and emails, coordinate and organize meetings, arrange childcare, and even organize family events. Unless you wanted to be alone, you always had a place to celebrate a holiday dinner, and even then, most wouldn't let you be alone for long. With an entire brigade or division deployed at once, everyone was in the suck together. So together was how we did life. I remember thinking that first year that it felt like I was going back in time when I drove through the gate from Colorado Springs. Like a portal to the 1950s, most military spouses were female and the most popular careers were selling Pampered Chef, Mary Kay, and Tupperware. As archaic as it sounds now, these were the most portable careers at the time and could be accomplished while children napped and went to school. The spouses who worked outside the home were in professional and highly portable fields, such as nursing and education. However, the majority of spouses opted not to work and stayed home with their kids because of the high degree of flexibility required by the unpredictability and work hours of their service members. The ability to communicate with our spouses overseas was better than anyone before us had ever seen. Skype wasn't perfect, but it was better than the tools of the generation prior, limited to writing letters or going months with no word from their service member. Email was mostly reliable, and depending on where your spouse was deployed, you could almost guarantee an email every day. If your videos were short and low enough in quality, you could email a video message back and forth. If you were lucky enough to have a BlackBerry, you were learning how to message each other in real time, even from the playground. At the end of that first deployment, everyone's husband on the block came back almost at once. This is where I learned a new cultural lesson about military life. Families seem to disappear when the service member comes home. Family time was precious. You had a year or less to reintegrate, recover, and rebuild before they were off again for another scheduled deployment. 
If you weren't prepared for it, it was quite a shock to have the village of military spouses you leaned on suddenly devoting all their energy to their marriages. Some families relocated not too long after, but if you were able to stick around long enough, the service members also got to know each other and the neighborhood would come back to life. Clearly, there was something transformative about a community having a shared cause, values, and a common enemy. But another component was a shared need that we could fill for each other. Chances are, if you came into the military community before 2011, your experience of the culture was similar. Service members from that time described deep bonds formed and strengthened amid shared deployment experiences. After the Great Culture Shift I noticed the Great Culture Shift around 2011 after moving and settling into another new house on post at Fort Stewart, Georgia. People weren't coming out of their homes. Playgrounds weren't busy. At first, I figured there was something special about my experience at Fort Carson, or perhaps I had looked at those first years of military life through rose-colored glasses. But as I spoke with others who had relocated across the globe, they described the same thing. Positions no longer had funding, and people were laid off. Anxiety started to rise as rumors spread of service members getting handed pink slips, or notices of dismissal, while still on deployment. I noticed other changes too. As we began a second deployment, our neighbors did not. They were still closed inside with their families intact or in some cases never introduced themselves at all. Working part-time as a mental health counselor off post, my wait list of military families grew. Soon I heard the same concerns behind confidential doors. Something very big was happening and my gut told me to pay attention. It was then that I started to lean into even the smallest shifts happening in and out of the military culture. Sometimes it would start with a topic brought up by a military spouse in a counseling session only to pop up soon after in other sessions, at group events, and even playing out in my own military family. By 2015, the military's family support system seemed to be falling apart across the globe. People weren't showing up for in-person events, even if it was to distribute critical information or to enrich their marriages. Facebook pages and virtual town halls became a way to get information and find resources after moving. Military spouses were quickly gaining a reputation as negative and dramatic, and soon cyberbullying increased as the derogatory name Dependa was used to bully spouses who seemed entitled or negative. This kept some families off social media altogether. Around 2016, generational differences emerged as baby boomers took the most senior leadership positions in the branches. Gen X executed large-scale military movements while millennials stepped into boots-on-the-ground command roles. Communication and leadership definitions were evolving, while older generations continued to lead as they had been led. Families asked for more support, while an oversaturation of programs and resources continued to be underutilized. The world rapidly changed with information at everyone's fingertips, politics splintered the country, and the line between foreign and domestic enemies blurred. Cancel culture was only a tweet away. As my career evolved to include consulting with large-scale organizations and niche groups like Special Operations Forces, I tested some of the trends I was witnessing to see if they resonated in other groups and branches. Across the board, whether it was military spouses, couples, service members, or leaders, the top concerns were resentment, identity and purpose, and burnout. We were losing the will of the people directly tasked to execute the mission. In the years since, I've seen a steady decline in what once made this lifestyle endearing and enticing for the next generation. 
In decades past, around 80% of those who served directly knew a family member who had served before them. Today, many veteran and active duty parents discourage their kids from joining. Senior military leaders, command teams, and organizations share the following. Generation Z military families are less eager to self-identify as military families. Those that do are less likely to show up for events that support and or develop well-being and resiliency. Traditional methods of distributing information are no longer efficient or effective. In-person social events are suffering or stagnant. In 2022, each military branch struggled to reach recruitment numbers, with the Army ending the fiscal year close to 21,000 under. Fewer families are living on installations than ever before. Traditional autocratic and hierarchical leadership that depends on trust and respect is being challenged by younger generations. Experienced and seasoned service members are leaving as they reach the 20-year retirement mark rather than accepting promotions. What happened? How can the DOD sustain a willing and ready force that is dissolving at this rate? How concerned should we be that the family culture and traditions as we knew them are disintegrating? The most common explanation is that generational differences must be getting in the way. What defines a generation? Generational labels are referenced in media more than ever as the DOD seeks to relate to its newest generation of recruits, many of whom have different values and expectations from leaders of other generations. Social media has provided a forum where generations openly jab at each other in jest while differences contribute to very real barriers in communication, confusion, and a widening gap between those who have experienced wartime and those who have not. Though it is just one of many variables that affect current circumstances, learning what defines each generation is a great place to begin. Generational differences are embedded in our everyday relationships, including family, work, and social encounters like waiting in line at the grocery store. As a new generation enters young adulthood, its members offer innovation and new perspective that changes human culture. Businesses and institutions inspired to remain competitive face the difficult task of adapting their branding and internal culture to recruit this new generation while still encouraging a productive multi-generational environment. Conflict and misunderstanding can exist between any generation. New generations tend to swing in the opposite direction from their upbringing. The dilemma for any institution or business is establishing a culture that is flexible while honoring the most important components that define each generation. Communicating through these differences is imperative if we expect a healthy work or social environment. Some people may cling tightly to their generational category while others resist a generalized label that threatens their uniqueness. Similar to personality tests, Generational labels are not meant to confine, but rather to provide insight into cultural changes, increase understanding, and act as a springboard for further dialogue about individual perspectives. Part of what we are seeing and will continue to see in the military culture is the demand for flexibility in a culture that has previously succeeded with and been defined by inflexible structures and systems. To cater to that request entirely would be to change the DNA of the organization, which is one of the many reasons why the DOD is struggling with retention and recruitment. Leveraging more curiosity around generational differences and expectations can help discern which areas are more adaptable and which must remain inflexible. Regardless of which generational category you are in, you likely feel the tension of either wanting to bring about change or to prevent it. Young generations inspired to make their mark on the world bring new strategies and ideas delivered with a sense of urgency and experimentation. 
Meanwhile, older generations tend to be more opposed to large organizational shifts, defending their years of experience with harder knowledge, position, and working style. Recently, I was brought in to consult a multi-generational team of active duty military and civilians, mostly retired military, on communication and teamwork. The boomers and millennials were clashing over different styles of communication and work ethic, and they were hoping to reduce conflict and work more efficiently. To break the ice and introduce a level of play, I gave them all Play-Doh and asked them to make something that represents who they are. One older gentleman who was a former special forces operator made a ball and called it a rock. He announced, this is me. I'm not moving. People will come and go. They may even stub their toe on this rock, but I've worked too hard and I know what I believe in. There's not much more I'm willing to change. He was direct, but endearing, molded by years of purposeful military service, constant change and striving through promotion lists. He was also motivated by the strong work ethic and values boomers are known for. He spoke of the years of structure that shaped his career and positively etched his soul. All of us will find ourselves at one point or another wanting to be valued and respected for the years we've put in. After all, isn't that how leadership is earned? This resistance is normal. In the fourth turning in American Prophecy, William Strauss and Neil Howe examined generations throughout history to find predictable patterns of cultural change. Strauss and Howe share that each generation exerts its own version of dominance over the other two that are younger as they enter adulthood. No consecutive generations are alike. Quote, your generation isn't like the generation that shaped you, but it has much in common with the generation that shaped the generation that shaped you, unquote. I see this in family systems work as well. Values that drive one generation are challenged in the next. Then the pendulum shifts again as the next generation challenges the one before. To learn how to truly work together, we must be willing to value innovation, healthy debate, and creativity as necessary tools for growth, success, and relevance. Leaning into how each generation brings these tools to the table is crucial to being a successful leader and working on a team. Yet much of the generational discussion, especially around the need for empathy in the workplace, doesn't easily fit into the military institution where hierarchy, rank structure, and obedience to orders are critical and culturally ingrained. Slowing down to appreciate, much less listen to, generational differences seems counterproductive. While each individual and family has a story, each generational cohort has a common story, and the military culture as a whole has a story. By learning each generation's cultural narrative, we gain insight into motivations and values. We also begin to identify our own story, helping us distinguish between reactions clouded by our own generational perspective versus gained wisdom. Several factors influence how generations are defined and shaped over time. Geographic location of upbringing. Typically, generational categories are organized by birth year, However, it is quite common for someone to fall into a category that does not quite describe their worldview. Jason Dorsey, president of the Center for Generational Kinetics, researches generational characteristics in the workplace. In order to help distinguish between the generations, Dorsey describes several life markers and experiences that should be factored in addition to date of birth. For example, the geographic location you were born in, as well as your culture, shapes your worldview. Were you born in an urban or rural environment? the conservative Bible Belt, or the Pacific Northwest? What country? Did that country have access to technology and steady information distribution of world events? Urban locations often surge with the first wave of new technology, while rural areas may not have the same advantage until years later. Season of life. 
In 2023, the Pew Research Center stated that it planned to end its use of generational categories when conducting and reporting on generational differences. They stated, quote, we'll only do generational analysis when we have historical data that allows us to compare generations at similar stages of life, unquote. What Pew and many other social scientists conclude is that there are traits that have more to do with the season of life, such as young adults gravitating towards more liberal views. With as much polarized division the country has endured, blurring hard lines between generations helps, quote, avoid reinforcing harmful stereotypes or oversimplifying people's complex lived experiences, unquote. It is an important distinction. With the military continuing to reach the youngest generation, generational labels are still used. It is important to consider the experiences of each person, as well as what behaviors and beliefs are influenced by their present life stage that might change as they enter the next. In this book, we'll consider traits and beliefs that tend to stick with a cohort over time to determine their contribution to and our response to their retention. Parenting Style Dorsey, similar to Strauss and Howe, contends that parenting plays an important role. For example, the Generation X nickname, Forgotten Generation, stems from baby boomer parents who pursued careers and financial security throughout the 80s and 90s, leaving their latchkey kids to play outside till dark and cook their own TV dinners in the microwave. My birth year is right on the Gen X millennial line. My cousin, just three years younger, was raised much differently by his parents, who were on the tail end of the boomers. They parented intentionally, following their sons from Indiana to Georgia when they graduated college. For them, parenting was about being attentive and heavily involved. My cousin is a millennial through and through, while I identify much more strongly as a member of Gen X. Technology. Technology has an incredible way of shaping culture. Every generation has been influenced by some level of advancement in technology and has experienced its impact on education, communication, and connection. Social media, for example, drastically changed the way we view human connection, as well as marketing and information distribution. Recently, I was visiting a college with my son where a baby boomer was briefing an audience of parents. Wanting to make a point about Gen Z needing help to manage screen time, he pulled out his cell phone and announced, can you believe we now have a computer in our pocket? Parents in the audience were mostly Gen X and only somewhat related to his enthusiasm. While baby boomers had witnessed a time of slide rules and mechanical calculators before electronic versions existed, these Gen X parents knew about portable phones by their 20s. Millennials experienced an era of the expansion of social media and the iPhone, while Gen Z will have grown up with virtual reality headsets and the beginnings of artificial intelligence. Technology is often a marker of your generational differences, and depending on your season of life may drastically impact your perspective and approach to life choices, military or otherwise. Historical markers. In addition to where and how you grew up, major life events have a way of marking key moments in your timeline and shaping your values. The assassination of President John F. Kennedy is a memory that almost all baby boomers share. The same is true for Gen Xers remembering the catastrophic mission of NASA's Challenger. The events of September 11, 2001 brought the entire country together with a new sense of patriotism yet ignited different responses from boomers, Gen X, and millennials. The COVID-19 pandemic is another historical marker for all generations. It dramatically altered Gen Z's most formative years and opened up new opportunities for innovation. Military Subculture 
While overall generational descriptions may be congruent between civilians and military families, the military as a subculture is an additional lens through which we should see generations. There are common values passed down or embraced by almost every military family generation. The willingness of service members and their families to accept significant sacrifice, family time, personal autonomy, one's life, is a shared burden and expectation for all. There are also considerably more life stressors, such as frequent relocations, deployments, isolation from extended family members, and potential combat trauma. Families are expected to absorb the complexity of these stressors, and many do so out of their own sense of service and sacrifice. The camaraderie, however, is most often referenced as the benefit that sets the military community apart from the civilian community. Traditions, ceremonies, specific social norms, and a deep connection to history solidify a strong sense of oneness that is difficult to explain but easy to spot in other military families. Each branch maintains its own set of values and mottos, but they all share a sense of duty, honor, respect, selfless service, discipline, and responsibility. Family members who may never see combat but offer support from the home front adopt the same values and teach them to their children. Despite the stressors, or perhaps because of them, a deep bond and mutual sense of identity are shared within the culture. The connection between veterans and current service families is especially endearing. I have always known that when I travel, the USO or any installation is a safe place to be among the tribe. The same is true when I meet a fellow military spouse. I recently met an 83-year-old military spouse at the Frankfurt Airport in Germany. As soon as we realized what we had in common, the generation gap melted away and we talked for hours. It doesn't matter what branch of service or current status, there is an unspoken bond we share, and the relationship generally starts from a place of trust. While in the civilian world, a person averages more than 140 hours of investment before being considered a good friend, the very real experience among military spouses is that most will say they can identify a new emergency contact for their kids in less than 60 minutes, especially if it's another military family. It is easy to assume that if we share the same values, even a similar lifestyle within the military, then everyone's experience must also be the same. This assumption is significantly contributed to the generational confusion. It's important to understand that each generation experiences military culture differently. Depending on when you enter the community and the generational perspective you bring, you are likely to experience historical events, social norms, and even the concept of community differently from others around you. Historians have tried to capture the spirit of soldiers and war heroes and nail down what gives an individual the courage to fight some of the most horrific battles. Many agree that you must understand who they were coming in to understand who they became. According to World War I historian Edward Gutierrez, quote, the pre-war life experience and personality of a soldier dictate how that soldier will react to battle. Individual predispositions shape a soldier's experience. When you gather that in mass, these individual voices become a collective narrative of warrior motivation and reaction to war, unquote. In order to examine why a service member would be willing to go into battle or even join the military and bring their family into this culture, we must examine who, collectively, is joining. Similarly, an individual or family's pre-military experience and generational personality dictate how that family will assimilate into the culture. This matters because many leaders are frustrated with why the younger generation is not as interested in some of the traditions and social customs many before them have come to love. 
We cannot assume that what worked for military families in World War II, the 1980s, or even shortly after 9-11 will work for this generation. Applying Guterres' words even further can help us understand why each generation has reacted differently to post-9-11 combat. The more we are able to listen to the voices of each generation as distinctive from other voices within the same tribe, the more we will find what motivates them towards productivity, community, and wellness. While whole books have been written about a single generation, we will be looking instead at key markers that shaped each generation and how that impacted their experience of the military culture. Likewise, we will look at how the military subculture had a hand in shaping each generation. Because the current makeup of the force includes baby boomers and younger, we will dive much deeper into their experiences over the last 20 years. However, as Strauss and Howe emphasized, we must go back a bit further to understand the cohort's experience and the military they walked into. Finally, untangling the problems faced today means understanding the larger military story. The story involves a deep exploration into how each generation has shaped the culture we experience today. As each new generation enters, it inherits the progress and the burdens of the previous generations. Willing to walk among the rubble. Wicked problems within a system can be overwhelming. Today's military leaders on every level are faced with the near impossible task of recruiting the next generation while healing the current one. We need leaders who are willing to walk through the rubble and get to know the people they serve alongside. It may require putting aside the comfortable script, including the way you see life, work, and this culture. It will also require your willingness to look for and be more aware of cognitive biases that inform how you see a problem. What may seem like a simple problem may, in fact, be far more complex when you see it through the eyes of another generation. On September 14, 2001, President George W. Bush stood on the rubble of what was the New York City Twin Towers, dressed in a button-down shirt and khakis. By then, we knew the enemy had come to us and that something would need to be done about it. The U.S. people, especially those at Ground Zero, were in a state of shock, exhaustion, grief, and paralysis. We were not ready to go to war. Bush's visit to the collapsed towers started with walking around the rubble. The stench of death, fire, and ash filled the air. The first responders around him had been there for days, exhausted from their efforts to find survivors. Spontaneously, Bush was asked to give remarks and someone handed him a bullhorn. He recalled, quote, my first instinct was to reprise parts of the speech I had given at the National Cathedral earlier that day, unquote. And he did until someone in the crowd yelled, we can't hear you. Bush reflected, quote, it became clear that my messaging at that point in time was not hitting the mark, unquote. The people in the middle of the war zone needed a different message than the people in the church who were there to grieve. The president quickly shifted away from the script and simply said, I can hear you. I can hear you. The rest of the world hears you. And the people and the people who knock these buildings down will hear all of us soon.
president's words, spoken into a bullhorn, won the will of the people. In the days that followed, America continued to unite as one. Memories of 9-11 hold both tragedy and an incredible sense of patriotism. We had something valuable to protect. In the aftermath, commissioning and enlistment for Generation X into our all-volunteer force skyrocketed. Millennials had just become eligible and were already joining to serve their country for the first time. While there were many moments of inspiration surrounding 9-11, I've thought a lot about why Bush's speech, now known as the Bullhorn Address, was so powerful. Our nation was in a vulnerable state of complex grief, a mixture of anger, sadness, confusion, and fear. Perhaps we would have received anything he was able to offer. However, he had already delivered two other speeches, including one I call the American Dad Address, the official well-crafted speech delivered from the Oval Office. In that speech, it was a message to everyone, including allies and terrorists, of just how seriously he was going to take this attack. He spoke with a somber, firm tone that conveyed someone was in trouble. He was just deciding who was going to get punished first. We needed a protector and a provider, and Bush delivered that for us in a suit and tie behind the Resolute desk. But the American Dad Address was not what stood out to most of us who sat glued to our televisions all week. Bush had also delivered the National Cathedral remarks earlier that day where he spoke to those who had lost loved ones. He took the role of a comforter, offering sympathy and validating the grief-stricken with the wisdom that time and history would bring purpose from their pain. He also named the attack, calling it pure evil. Those present that day remember parts of that speech, but once again, it was not what stood out most that day. It was the words yelled through a bullhorn just hours later that ignited patriotism and renewed the spirit of an entire country. Looking back, And knowing what I now know about communication, all three speeches were necessary. Each message was congruent with what the American people needed to hear. Speeches of comfort and protection revealed his deep loyalty and commitment, expected of a leader. Yet the unscripted bullhorn address captured the moment Bush led from the trenches. President Bush didn't realize he was impulsively writing a historic speech. He was simply answering the man from the crowd by saying, I can hear you. However, his willingness to meet the people where they were established trust in the relationship for his words to answer something deeper that the crowd didn't even know they needed. They were tired, angry, devastated, and traumatized. Their ash-covered faces and eyes spoke words they didn't have yet. The first message they heard was that he genuinely heard and saw them. Metaphorically, our military culture is in a similar state. The people are looking for leaders who will, of course, fulfill their commitment as a comforter and protector, and who will also look into the eyes of those who carry the cost of service. We can learn a lot from this moment, when a leader won the will of the people with just a few words. At a moment when morale was low and people were angry, Bush's leadership strengthened their resolve to give more when they were ready to give in, and in doing so, he won their loyalty. Moments like these make or break leaders, businesses, and institutions because they expose the connection or the disconnect they have with the people they serve. Looking deeper at this moment also shows how we can be more intentional as we read through the cultural story and wicked problem that impacts millions of people. As the crowd erupted in a cheer signaling to the president that his words hit something deeper, the president yelled, 
The world hears you. And a second message was delivered. This one is interesting. On one hand, I believe the crowd heard a message that they were not alone. The rest of the country and people around the world desperately wanted to be there to help carry the burden they shouldered. We also shared their grief and anger. They were not alone or wrong for feeling what they were feeling because others did too. The president closed the gap between the people at Ground Zero and those outside the city, further validating their experience, but also igniting advocacy in others who were listening. But the deeper and more important message was that he acknowledged that they had an understandable desire for justice. Instead of quelling it or minimizing it, it was as if he was giving their voice the bullhorn and validating their right as humans to have thoughts, feelings, and opinions on the matter. We are held accountable for how we choose to communicate them, but thoughts and feelings don't have to be threatening or intimidating. It is what makes us human, even when we disagree. By validating that the world could hear their anger, the president acknowledged that he heard it, saw it as part of being human, and allowed it. The crowd responded even more loudly, their resolve building. When the president ended with, the people who knocked down these buildings will hear all of us soon, he delivered a final powerful message of commitment to action. He knew the situation called for a response and the people wanted to know what that response would be. Although his words didn't share the details of the mission ahead, he answered the unspoken question of whether the people had a leader who valued them enough to defend them. In those few words, this leader won the people, strengthened their resolve to give more when they were ready to give in, and won their loyalty. No one could have known just how overwhelming the decades ahead would be, nor how long we would commit ourselves to it. What was powerful about Bush's bullhorn speech was not just that he communicated the mission to defend the country, but that he acknowledged the experience of the American people first. He recognized the importance of winning the will of the people. And when it came time to communicate, he publicly acknowledged that he understood their needs and would be their advocate. Only then, amid cheers and chants that communicated that he had won their trust, did he announce the mission. Especially in the military, we are trained to avoid when possible commitment, engagement, or the mission without a full analysis and courses of action assessed for vulnerabilities. Yet, as you walk into the rubble, who can you commit to being as a leader within your circle of influence? Consider one action you can start today, even if that is just being more intentionally present with the next person in front of you. Within the military culture, there is no mission without trust and loyalty. An example worth remembering, everyone can change and grow. The boomer who saw himself as the immovable rock later brought me back to lead his directorate through the same training. Empowered with a new perspective of generational strengths, he started the training with vision casting how important it was to productivity and morale to not only understand your own generational story, but to truly listen to others' stories. While he stood by his direct, focused, get the job done leadership style, he explained that he understood it was his style and not necessarily theirs. At the end of the training, he asked the team not only where leadership could improve, but for their accountability as they made adjustments. Likewise, he asked them to provide feedback on areas they could improve on and how he could best hold them accountable to change. 
By leveraging the compassion and curiosity he naturally had for the team and work he valued, he was able to translate his generational strength from an immovable rock to a leader who provides a secure foundation of honesty and support they can trust and rely on. The Military Culture Shift podcast was written and produced by me, author, speaker, and military clinical consultant, Corey Weathers. It is a supplemental leadership podcast for the book, Military Culture Shift, The Impact of War, Money, and Generational Perspective on Morale, Retention, and Leadership, aimed to invite discussion in order to consider productive solutions for our nation's security and force of service members and their families. Copies of the book can be purchased on Amazon, militaryfamilybooks.com, and your other favorite retailers. More information, including graphs, data, and other resources mentioned in the book, as well as connecting with me, can be found on my website, coreyweathers.com. 